I thank you for remaining standing once more for the honor of the hearing of the reading of God's Word. Psalm 133, a song of degrees of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended the mounts of Zion, there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, As we come now to this beautiful psalm, we desire your blessings, and we desire to know more of you and your merciful dealings with us and with all your people through the ages. We therefore ask that you send your Holy Spirit to illumine the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. Grant us ears to hear with our hearts in a way that far exceeds our physical hearing. Make our hearts receptive to all that is true and in accord with your word. Shine gospel light in the yet dark corners of our lives and grant us much grace as we seek your face. This we pray with utter dependence upon and confidence in the Almighty Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going off script already. This might not be good. <laughs> but I wanted, I wanted to share with you, um, my dear brothers and sisters of Heritage, from, from almost the very beginning of our journey with Heritage, these last 14-ish years or so, Psalm 133 has been a favorite. It has characterized, it has expressed concisely so much of what I love about this church. And we sing it great regularity, and it makes my heart glad. And I also wanted to share, Marion, if, if you want to read the scriptures and just preach like you did this morning from Jeremiah, just go. <laughs> I loved it. Um, but anyway, anyway, we do have a message this morning, and I want to share a few things with you, but let's just take a moment now and, and consider these past few weeks as we have been led um, by our pastor, by Marion, to consider the the glorious gospel that defines our life. As we began this year with particular focus on the vision of heritage, Pastor Lovett has, has led us through a series of messages on the doctrines of grace and pointed us to the biblical truth of and the hope that we have in the gospel. We were reminded of that most fundamental doctrine of man where we see from Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that in Adam we have all sinned, and that all of our faculties are damaged, we don't think right, we don't act right, and the image of God in us has been marred, and we no longer rightly manifest His knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In successive weeks, we considered the great love that God has for His people and how He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in the Father's great love, He purposed according to His eternal decree to send His Son to redeem His people. 
and efficaciously atone for our sins. And as the Father sent the Son to redeem God's elect, all that the Father has given the Son will surely be saved. For the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and the grace of Christ is irresistible. As God effectually calls His own unto Christ, we are justified and declared righteous in His sight, and all whom God justified also are glorified. For He graciously preserves His chosen, and we have the full assurance that we will persevere through this life, though we now see Him as through a glass darkly. But then, we will see Him face to face. At the core... The very core of everything we do and who we are is the gracious gospel of Christ. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. The vision of heritage is that we own our sins and deal with the sin in our lives in the gospel and live our lives in the knowledge of His glorious grace, not taking credit for anything He has done or is doing here. We are to be about the business of loving Christ, serving Christ, calling others to Christ as we daily repent of our sins, believe and reply, rely upon the gospel, and love one another, serve one another, and encourage one another. And this we do because we are complete in Christ. As God has begun a good work in us, He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, We must believe this, we must know this, and when we forget, we must remind one another of this. As we live and work out this vision, we do so as partakers of God's gracious covenant with His people. When we are given new life in Christ, justified and receive God's grace of faith, or when we are born into a family of believing parents, we become a part of His covenant people, and He places the sign and seal of that covenant upon us in baptism. We then live out the remainder of our lives in the context of that covenant as members in His church, and we enjoy the benefits and privileges of that membership. There are numerous blessings as we keep His covenant and even benefit from His gracious, chastening hand For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. As we yield to and respond to the chastening, we grow in Christ and it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Over the course of the next couple of messages, I want to take time to remind us of the blessings of life as the covenant of people covenant people of God, and to remind us of some of the structures and order that He has given us as His people so that we might flourish and grow in grace. Today, we consider the blessings of unity. Next week, Lord willing, we will consider the covenant family. But before I jump right into a consideration of unity, we want to be careful as we consider this covenant life, this covenant life in a covenant community of God, that we not box in our understanding of the term covenant too tightly. We might tend to have a tendency, given the contemporary use of the word covenant, to equate it with contract, or perhaps something akin to a last will and testament. But Scripture presents a much broader concept of covenant. 
In fact, covenant is often present in Scripture even when the word or term covenant isn't found in the immediate context of a passage. For example, our Scripture meditation this morning from Genesis was the account of the fourth day of creation, where God made the sun to rule the day and the moon and the stars to rule the night. We may, may not be thinking of covenant as we um, read that passage, but when we read Jeremiah, we see that God reveals through His prophet that when He created the sun and the moon and the stars, He did so as an unbreakable covenant of the day and of the night. In fact, the word of covenant doesn't appear in Scripture until Genesis chapter 6 as we read about God's dealings with Noah. When we read the creation account, we see covenantal structures and we refer to a covenant of works or a covenant of creation that God made with Adam. This is confirmed when we come to Hosea 6-7 and read, but like men, they transgress the covenant. And the word translated men in many translations there is Adam. When God makes a covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, there are familial and relational dimensions that come into play. And we should note that even though we refer to these covenants by the name of an individual, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, etc., God never makes a covenant with an individual, individual, but rather with a people. God's covenant of works with Adam was as representative head of all mankind. When Adam fell, we all fell. God's covenant with Noah included his wife, his sons, his son's wife, and all his posterity, and so on. And so, as I look out across this assembled congregation, what do I see? If I come to it with a pair of lenses that have been honed in biblical covenant theology, I'm not looking at a collection of gathered individuals or or even individual families, but I'm looking at a portion of the covenant people of God. This understanding and perspective ought to have a great impact on how we view our life together and how we live our lives together. Covenant theology reminds the people of God that they are to think covenantally rather than individually. Such a mindset is the very opposite of that which shapes much of current Western thinking. The church of Jesus Christ is a community of redeemed sinners bound to their Lord and to one another in a bond of love within the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is a term we use to encompass all the covenants beginning with Genesis 3.15 where we see the gospel in seed form. When, the God said, when God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And through the rest of redemptive history, God reveals with greater clarity his gracious covenant as we anticipate and then see its fulfillment in Christ. And so we continue to live as God's covenant people in the light of that fulfillment and how thankful we are. God gives Himself to be to us to be our God and takes us to be His people. 
I will be your God and you will be my people is the covenantal refrain throughout the Old Testament. We need to know that Christians belong to their covenant Lord. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This also means that as Christians, we are bound to one another and must think of ourselves as part of a community. Paul expresses this truth using the language of the body in Ephesians 4.25. We are members of one another. We are therefore to take our covenant brothers and sisters into account in all of our Christian living. The covenant community is no place for rugged individualists. We must be constantly asking, how will this affect other believers? Or how will what I am doing or saying affect my brothers and sisters in Christ? If we love our brothers and sisters, we will seek what is best for them, including their growth in grace. This can be done in a positive way by exhortation and mutual encouragement. The writer of, the, of Hebrews, after speaking the blessings of the new covenant that are provided in the blood of Jesus, calls the people of God to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke one another unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. <clears throat> The covenant community is the place where we are spurned on by fellow believers to make use of the means of grace, including the gatherings of the church for worship, which will shape us more into the likeness of the mediator of that covenant. This is not something that happens automatically. We must consciously consider how to do it most effectively. A consistent example a word of encouragement, an offer of help when a brother appears to be struggling. All these and more have their place. Here is a ministry in which every Christian can and should be engaged. While elders have a special responsibility for the oversight of the community, there is opportunity for all, everyone, to be involved. One important element in the life of the covenant community is the bearing of one another's burdens. This is Paul's command in Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Our brothers and sisters are called by the Lord to bear all kinds of burdens, but they are not called to bear them alone. Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells them, there is a ministry of those who are united to the same Savior in the bonds of the covenant. Indeed, this is often how the Spirit provides His help. When a brother or sister struggles with discouragement, or failure, or worry, bereavement, aging, sickness, the prospect of death, or any other problem, the burden is made heavier if others could help, who could help, stand idly by. It can be costly to bear someone else's burden, costly in time, costly in physical and emotional energy, and there is no guarantee that the effort will be appreciated. If we take seriously our covenant unity, 
However, we will make the effort and take the risk. In our own times of trial, we also need to be willing to accept ministry and in all humility communicate our particular needs. It is easier to be the strong one giving help than it is to admit weakness and accept help. Yet that too is part of being members of the one body. We also need to be reminded that sin, sin is a reality within the covenant community. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, John tells us. In love, believers can hold each other accountable for their behavior and so deal with sin before it grows and causes even greater problems. Sin can devastate fellowship, and thus it must not be ignored in the futile hope that it will just go away. If all believers are faithful in ministering to one another, exhorting and sharpening one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, far fewer sin issues would grow out of control and require attention in formal discipline. I think we are all aware that a covenant community that is functioning according to God's pattern is a healthy and wonderful environment for the raising of our covenant children. As they grow up, they are surrounded by examples of what it means to be a godly man or woman. We therefore should each be aware of the testimony we speak with our lives at all times, but especially when we are gathered for corporate functions or in our home fellowships or when we work together on a project. We should not be afraid to have our children copy what they see in our brothers and sisters Words of instruction are to be supported by action. The vows we take as a congregation at a child's baptism to help the parents rear and nurture that child in the Lord come into play. A typical exhortation is given to help those who are being baptized this day and encourage them in their Christian walk. Exhort them in love and good works. And if you should see any of them wander from the faith or Christian practice, to lovingly admonish them back into the path of righteousness. And then we take a vow. We vow as a congregation to do all in our power to support this person in their life in Christ. This is life in the covenant community. This is life lived in the light of the covenant of grace. It is a beautiful life. It is a beautiful life to be lived in the unity of the Spirit of God. Which brings us finally to our text. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. David, as the psalmist, brings this declaration to us axiomatically. It is assumed and to be understood without proof or clarification that it is indeed good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. And I would like to declare right now that the vision of heritage includes the beautiful outworking of this truth. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for the brothers and sisters of Heritage Church to dwell together in unity. 
as I was preparing this message, I came across um, a sermon from Adrian Rogers, which is why I mentioned him to you earlier, Bert. I know that Bert has met Adrian Rogers on multiple occasions, um, and I trust at least a few of you know the man by name. Raise your hand, let me see who, who okay, so I'm not speaking totally to people who don't know. But for those who don't know, Adrian Rogers was the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. Large church. He pastored there from 1972 to 2005, and he, where he retired in 2005 and also passed away. I would uh, often listen to him on the radio. He, he had a powerful preaching voice. He, he spoke with great clarity, and I really appreciated that about him. And I think he's still carried today on Christian radios with the program Love Worth Finding. Um, his, his ministry continues. He served three terms as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And during the time from 1972 to uh, 2005, the congregation grew from 9,000, which is a huge church, <laughs> to 29 thousand members. But what it is about Adrian Rogers that really sticks with me is he had a tremendous gift for alliteration in his classic three-point sermons. I had a conversation with Marion once upon a time, and he said, now you don't have to go down the alliteration path and have three points. <clears throat> you should feel liberty not to. But after, after hearing Brother Rogers preach a message on unity. I, I thought I would borrow this and share with you if you ever want to listen to Pastor Adrian Rogers on the radio. It, it could be a blessing to you. And you could, um, and, I, and I might answer Ethan back there. You asked earlier, do you ever cut it? <laughs> you know, if I could sound like someone, every now and then I wish that I could sound like Brother Adrian Rogers. He was so engaging as he spoke and as he preached the Word of God. But he had a three-point sermon that I'm going to, I'm going to leverage, uh, three points that I'm going to leverage here now. So in honor of, of Brother Adrian, he said that unity is the desire of God, the delight of the saved, and the dread of Satan. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. First, the desire of God. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body, unto the edifying of itself and love. Love that passage. We see here not only the explicit unity of the faith, but a picture of the whole church fit together as a body, rooted and maturing in Christ, 
growing up, being built up in love, and each as each member works, works out their gifts, they work together in a beautiful unity. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul also writes, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all, above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Paul here assumes not a trouble-free church, not a sin-free, trouble-free covenant life, but rather knows that there will be divisions that arise and that we need to daily put off the old man and put on Christ. He calls the church to mortify our sins and the deeds of the flesh and forbear and forgive one another, to suffer long with one another and to deal with one another in mercy kindness, and humility. And above even these things, we are to love one another, which binds us together in unity. And Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called and that ye should inherit a blessing. We are called to unity in this covenant life. Therefore, we should pursue it even as we are instructed to do. With love and compassion, being considerate and courteous to one another, and not returning evil for evil. This may seem to us like obvious rules of engagement, but they are the biblical exhortations and imperatives we need to return to again and again. Second point, unity is the desire of the saved. When the land was not able to bear the flocks and herds of both Abram and Lot, and strife rose among their clans, Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife. I pray thee between me and thee, and between my herdsmen and thy herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will take the right hand. Or if thou wilt depart to the right, then I will go to the left. If we love Christ and love our brothers and tensions begin to grow, we will quickly seek peace, resolution, restoration, or whatever else is necessary to maintain unity. If, however, we find ourselves continually at odds with our brothers and have no true desire for unity, and even looking for reasons why we can't be unified, we should check our hearts, because God hates those who create disunity. In Proverbs 6, we read, six, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. A proud look, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord 
among the brethren. We conclude also, therefore, that unity is the dread of Satan. And we should know that disunity is one of the enemy's commonly used tactics. When we are divided, we are not unified in truth and love. We give Satan a foothold. In Ephesians 4, we read, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. We put away lying, for that is the way of the father of lies. We speak the truth with our neighbor. And the neighbor being referenced here, we can be sure, is a brother in Christ because Paul adds, for we are members one of another. Friends, we must be truthful with one another and when it comes to anger, when it comes to offenses, when it comes to hurt feelings, if we can't let love that we have for our brother cover those offenses, then we are called to deal with the offense quickly, to reconcile quickly, and to pursue peace quickly, to even deal with the matter before the day comes to an end, if at all possible. Otherwise, we give Satan a foothold, and the sin grows, and it gnaws away at us, and we become more and more discontent, and before you know it, we are sowing seeds of discord and disunity. I join a hearty amen to my brother Larry's prayer this morning, giving thanks to God for his unity. So as I speak plainly to you here in a moment, I want, I want you to know that that is the truth, and I am so very thankful. But like an axe that gets used, it needs to be sharpened regularly. And we have all of this instruction before us, and so we need to consider it. Brothers and sisters of heritage, the Lord has blessed us greatly. He has poured out His blessing upon blessing, and we can but stand back in awe and praise His name for what good things He has done. And by the way, that is one of the things that will help grow us in unity. And yet, as time goes by, we come to know one another better. And in the presence of this knowledge, we are very vulnerable to the forces of disunity, and we stand at a point where we need to be called once more to pursue Unity, for it is in the midst of our unity that God is glorified, our testimony is true, and His blessings are found. In his sermon on May 14, 2017, entitled God's Empowered Community, Pastor Lovett noted, a church cannot be effective if they are not spiritually unified. The greatest danger to the church's effectiveness in the world is a lack of that unity. That is why the Apostle Paul spoke in every epistle he wrote about the danger of disunity, whether it be in heresies or whether it be in practical relationships among God's people. I heard that and said, Amen. I speak plainly now to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I am calling us right now to a time of introspection and reflection. This will require perhaps an uncomfortable and difficult level of honesty, because the question before us is, are we really pursuing unity? 
Anyone who has been in a particular church for any length of time knows the difficulty in maintaining unity. There are so many ways for us to practically live out this covenant life in a way that is contrary to unity in the body. And here I'm going to list but a few, and there are questions that we are to ponder and, and um, just, just ask yourself this question. And as I work through this list, just honestly consider, is there any way from any angle that this may apply to you even just a little bit? And I confess before I even go through the list that, that this is hard. This was hard for me. And I repent. Number one, if you find yourself grumbling about a certain church member or a certain member family, and you don't pursue genuine restoration of fellowship, and you don't repent of your grumbling, you are cultivating disunity. If it is easy to identify something you are discontent about in church, or you don't believe the church is meeting your particular need, and you keep it to yourself or complain about it within your family, you are planting seeds of disunity. If you often feel the need to undo or explain the error in the sermon or the problems with the liturgy or the music in the service, and you don't seek the counsel of the pastors or clarification or understanding, then you are moving the church in the direction of disunity. If you are coldly going through the motions of worship, participating only at the most minimal level in ministry, or wondering why no one is interested in your gifts, the gifts that you have to offer or the service you want to render, whether it's your intention or not, in some way, you're creating sparks of disunity. If you engage in gossip or slander, or lying or not dealing honestly with another, if you are seeking to take advantage of or presume upon a brother or a sister, presume upon their kindness or their generosity, then you are giving the devil a foothold and the consequences could be grave and will almost certainly lead to a measure of disunity. I'm thankful that this doesn't characterize this church at all. And I want you to hear me rightly. I'm not accusing anyone in particular of sowing seeds of discord. I'm asking the question. The apostles throughout Scripture exhort the people of the church to consider how to live in unity, and so we should as well. I'm asking the question knowing that we are vulnerable and that these sorts of things, and so many more, I didn't even ask about the color of the carpet, have wreaked havoc in all manner of churches at various times throughout her history. Are we pursuing unity in our relationships with our brothers and sisters? Are we swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Are we pursuing peace with all men and pursuing holiness? Are we forbearing one another, forgiving one another, and when we have a quarrel, do we really forgive as Christ has forgiven us? When a brother sins against us, do we go and take it to him and him alone, knowing that if he hears us, we have gained that brother and restored the fellowship and the bond of love? 
I am speaking plainly to you and to myself, knowing that we have the hope of the gospel and we are complete in Christ. The hope of the gospel is not limited to eternal life. It is for all of life. The hope of the gospel is, in fact, our only hope of unity and peace, and it is a sure hope and a great hope. And so as we return back to the text, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like a precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Note that unity here is likened unto the priestly anointing of Aaron. The specially prepared anointing oil is supplied and applied to Aaron's head, and it runs down his beard and all the way down to the hem of his robe. And in typical Hebraic fashion, we have a parallel description of the dew of Hermon and the dew that descended upon Zion. The picture here is that the good and pleasant blessing of unity descends from heaven and flows down through all of God's people. We know from James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Unity in the body of Christ is not something that we manufacture with worldly wisdom or psychological methods or, or with the latest business success techniques. It comes down from heaven. It is gospel. It is all of grace. As we repent and believe the gospel, as we manifest the love of Christ in the midst of the congregation of saints, as we put off the old man and put on Christ, God commends His blessing there at Zion. Here He commands His blessing at Zion in the midst of worship, even life forevermore. Brothers and sisters of heritage, surely this is a blessing worth pursuing. Surely this is what we're called to. As we walk in the Spirit, we also manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is the fruit that is so intimately connected and leads to unity. I know Pastor Lovett has on multiple occasions pointed to the singular tense that we have here as this is the fruit, a singular fruit of the Spirit, and that, that the Spirit works out all of these and all of the dimensions. But as I was reading through that list, I also see that names came to mind about those who have a particular emphasis, a particular clarity in that facet of this fruit. There are those who who are particularly gentle. Those who reach out in love and care for the body. There are those who suffer long. And so on. And I'm so thankful. I'll close with a brief story from church history that reminded me of the sweet unity that we presently enjoy in this church. John Fawcett was the pastor of a small Baptist church at 
church at Waynesgate in West Yorkshire, England. And he was called from there to a larger church in London in 1772. He accepted the call and preached his farewell sermon. The wagons were loaded and his books and furniture were all in the wagon ready for his departure when his parishioners gathered around him and with tears in their eyes begged him to stay. His wife said, Oh, John, John, I cannot bear this. Neither can I, exclaimed the good pastor, and we will not go. Unload the wagons and put everything as it was before. His decision was held with great joy by his people, and he wrote the words of this hymn in commemoration of the event. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin, we shall be free, and perfect love and friendship reign through all eternity. We have been richly blessed of God. God has bestowed beautiful and abundant gifts to this little congregation of His church. We have the gospel of Christ, and in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. And so my prayer is that we will continue to know this and believe this, that we will live it out day by day until our days come to an end, and that we will be able to declare with all praise and honor and glory to Christ our Savior, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters of heritage to dwell together in unity. May it ever be so. Our merciful Father, our glorious Father in heaven, we are ever and eternally thankful for Christ our Savior. In the weakness of our flesh, we stumble and fall. In the weakness of our flesh, we sin and fall far short of your glory. But in Christ, we are complete. All of our sins have been atoned for. We are forgiven and his righteousness is imputed to us. I pray, O oh Father, that you will do a mighty work in us, your people, and send your Holy Spirit in power to descend upon us, even as the anointing oil descended down the head of Aaron, over his beard, and down to the hem of his robe, and grant us a pure desire for and a pursuit of the blessings of unity. And I ask that you would do this for your sake, for the sake of your great name and the honor of Christ and his kingdom, for we ask in him. Amen.